Welcome to my den. If you're anything like me, especially following this election season, you're probably shuddering in your boots to some extent, hiding your face from all of the political hurling, speech vomiting, and lack of listening that's happening right now. I am utterly exhausted from that, and so I invited a good friend of mine who I knew would be an amazing person to really dissect all of this drama happening across the political, economic, social spectrum right now. And his name is Mike Kelly. Mike is a great friend of mine. He and I have known each other for several years at this point and actually met up at a student event, believe it or not, since I'm you know 24 and this was just a few years ago, uh, close to my hometown in Mars Hill. Now, Mike was a former VP of Learning and Development at Macy's and has had a phenomenal career, but he just released a book called Leaderfluence, Secrets of Leadership Essential to Effectively Leading Yourself and Positively Influencing Others. And and Mike is so funny because he is, as he states on the show, a proud native analog. I believe Mike, he I don't know if I know his exact age, but he is he looks so young. He looks like he's in his like 40s, early 40s. And we joke all the time because I'm pretty sure he's in his 60s or 70s at this point and is such a, a man full of just so much wisdom and someone I admire immensely. So I can't wait for you to hear this discussion today. We're actually going to role play a courageous disagreement where I play a pro-life or excuse me, pro-choice woman. And uh, Mike plays a pro-life black man. And, uh, and we demonstrate what it's like to have a courageous disagreement that does not result in yelling, word hurtling, speech vomiting, and a lack of listening. I invite you into this conversation with open ears and highly suggest that if you enjoy this discussion, that you check out Leader Fluence and, uh, and check out Mike Kelly. He's, he's really an incredible guy. I want to, before we jump into the episode, remind you to go check out Skills TikTok channels, Instagram channels, and we just launched on Facebook as well on Facebook Reels for those of you who don't have an Instagram or a TikTok and want to check out the street interviews that we're doing. You can check out uh, those videos. There's some fascinating ones. And also, drumroll, you can now click a link into the community where Gen Zers come together with business leaders to connect, network, and uh, form reverse mentorships. We're super excited about the connections we've already seen in the group um, up to this point. So go check that out if you're not involved already. All right, without further ado, buckle up your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that, and join me in my living room with the amazing Mike Kelly. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today.
in terms of controversy and looking at ourselves, tell me more about that. Well, you've got the abortion issue that's happening. You've got a lot of race relations type things that are continuing to happen. You've got what's going on in the Ukraine. And, and if you think about a lot of these things, a lot of it is just human beings against human beings. I'm not going to listen to you because I've got my own ideas. My mind's already made up and this is the way things should be. Now, why do I feel the way that I do? Well, I don't know, but this is just the way that I feel. So we don't hear each other and we tend to, in those cases, we are moving further and further and further apart as opposed to closer and closer together. And one of the challenges that I see with this, I am hearing this more and more in my coaching work, is that a lot of the digital natives are tuning out the analog natives because of this, as opposed to being willing to listen. I, I think we're losing credibility. And that is not good for not only the digital natives, but for future generations. So that is, that is what I mean. So in order to change, I got to realize that I am conditioned and the way that I see the world is made up of what I have seen historically in my own life, family, church, school, friends, community. I see the world a certain way because of what I've been exposed to. I developed certain habits related to that, some good, some bad. But I'm not even aware that they exist until something happens or until someone helps me understand that they exist and then supports me in doing something about them. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the things I feel that uh, we are missing. I really couldn't agree more. And it's, it's interesting what you said about native digitals and native analogs and that divide, because I see that 100% all around me. But I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, because this is something I'm hearing a lot from my native digital peers, which is, you know, they'll say a lot of times, you know, we're the ones who are younger with the more agile thinking, you know, we haven't been around as long to have these embedded or ingrained ideas of what's right or wrong. And oftentimes we're saying, you know, me and my peers saying things like, we just wish the older generation would be more open-minded. So I'm really curious because you said, you know, a second ago that it seems like there's, I'm assuming kind of your underlying thought is neither side is listening to the other and we all have a predisposition toward habits. And what's the data? Maybe you, you can refresh my memory on, you know, the average human or average adult makes thousands of decisions per day and about 90% of them are unconscious. If I, yes, right? yes, yes, uh, yes. How many decisions is it? It's got to be in the thousands. I don't, I, I don't know the number, but I also know that we're exposed to thousands of digital messages that tend to shape our thinking as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're all exposed to thousands and thousands of messages per day from the people around us, from social media, from the news. And then we're also making thousands of decisions, but 90% of those are unconscious or subconscious decisions. So it, how am, I guess what I'm seeing is there's so many of us, every single human being who's making decisions or assumptions based on things that have been built from our past. How do we change those or challenge the assumptions, I guess would be a better way to put it. Well, I, I am of the opinion that 
one of the most beneficial things that we can all do is take the time to slow down and think. We were just talking about how we make decisions. And a lot of times they're quickly without thinking how we're exposed to information. And oftentimes we just digest this information without thinking. And then we just go out and act. I really feel that if we just took the time to slow down and think the world would be a totally different place. We're more, we're reacting and we're being influenced without thinking. And how do you take, how do you think? How do you carve out time to think? Well, you've got to make it a priority. You've got to set it aside. You've got to turn off the, the cell phone. And like uh, Groucho Marx says, when someone turns the TV on, it, he said the TV can be very, television can be very educational. When someone turns it on, I go in another room and read a book. But just taking the time to, to slow down and think for ourselves as opposed to being directed and influenced by other people, in my opinion, is one thing we can do. Uh, another thing is, if we were to get feedback from other people, and I do a lot of this in my coaching work, about how we show up, how we come across, transparent, candid feedback on how we're coming across to those that we love, lead, and serve, if we're listening to, willing to listen to that, then act on it, that can be transformational. But all of these things, Hannah, take time. And in my opinion, that is something that many of us don't feel that we have much of. Uh, for sure. I mean, uh, you ask humans in America, what's the number one thing they struggle with? And it's lack of time. And, and I think a lot of times in my experience, that leads to difficulty prioritizing what's important. So, okay, let me dive a little deeper into this then. So let's take, let's take something controversial. I mean, we just saw what happened with Roe v. Wade and the decision over, you know, in this past week, um, since we're recording here at the end of June. And so I'm, I'm just curious. So let's say that a, that someone who does not share your opinion on the topic gets yeah. on Facebook. Let's say it's Facebook, not even uh, TikTok or Instagram. They're on Facebook and they post something that is extremely affirmative of their views, which you heavily disagree with. What would be your recommendation or approach as to how to how to react or respond to that post in a loving, helpful way that does not lead to more and more division like we already have? Yeah. I just experienced this over the weekend. This actually happened. Someone who's who I know well and a very, I guess you'd call it influential, important role, posted something from the heart. This is the way they felt. And a lot of what they actually shared was based on their own conditioning, previous conditioning. And it was, you know, it was, it was just the way this person felt. So they posted it and got some supporters. But all of a sudden, some people took the opposite side and started to lash out. And this person tried to back pedal, but it was very difficult for them. I did not respond at all. In situations like that, for me, social media is a tool that can be used for good and bad. I would prefer to give this person a phone call, take them out for coffee, and just have a conversation. And the majority of that time, my hope is that I can spend it listening to this individual, probing, asking questions, 
just in a, in a, in an effort to get to know why the person feels that the way they do and what they think and why they think the way they do and why they posted what they posted. But then follow that up by also, if the person's interested, sharing a little bit about how I feel and why I feel the way that I do with the hope of coming to a place where we can go out and serve and support and help make a difference in this very disrupted, chaotic, divided world. That would be my approach. I am not a proponent of going back and forth over social media. I don't think that serves. I don't think that serves anyone well. Interesting. So basically what, what you're saying is your approach would be in, in situations that are this controversial or open to so many interpretations, you'd rather not even respond no. to the social media post, but go talk in person with this person who you care about and understand their perspective. Yes. Or over the phone, but at least touch base with the individual and have a conversation because a lot of the interactions on social media leave a lot to be, uh, I think, interpreted. You can interpret it in many different ways, but there are a lot, there's a lot to be, there's a lot is left unsaid oftentimes. So we need to really communicate. And, and, and when we think about a lot of the issues that we're facing, the other thing is that we're not communicating. And what is communication? How do you define communication, Hannah? That's a good, that's a good question because I think a lot of times communication is seen as just defending a position instead of having a two-way conversation. I, I would say communication is two people listening to each other, hearing the other side's perspective, and then offering an opinion. An opinion, not a dogmatic statement. So yes. a two-way street. Yes. Yes. How would you define communication? You've got a sender and you have a receiver. And in my opinion, the receiver has a very important role. And that role is to give the sender space to share their heart without being judged. So for me, it's turning off the noise and just being with the person, bringing energy and emotion. And once I hear, I take the time to digest what I've heard before I respond. And when I respond, I want to come from a place of Caring, authenticity, I want to be authentic, uh, and I want to be honest, but do it with love. So sender, receiver, receiver plays a very, very important role. Oftentimes we don't really hear, hear well. Hearing, listening is a very difficult thing. And you've heard this. We actually have the ability to speak at 150 words a minute or so. We have the ability to listen at what is 400 to 650 words a minute. So it's difficult, but that's how I define it, define it. So I, I want to do this and I've, I've really never done this on this show before, but I think since we know each other so well, Mike, and we've gone back so long, I'm really thinking we should give an example of this because here's what happens in my sphere as native digital. There's a platform called The Conversationalist. And we, it is a Gen Z talk show that is paired with a Gen Z forum. And you, can, you yeah. have to be a Gen Zer to be on here. Now, many of the posts are very caring. Everyone's supporting each other, talking about their life projects and how they can help each other with, you know, through whatever it is, mental health crisis, addiction, et cetera. However, when we on Monday nights have these live sessions where for 30 minutes, the host comes on and puts out a provocative point of view. So it could be something like, um, you know, what are your thoughts on Roe v. Wade as an example? 
and the overturning. And then basically what this conversation devolves into is a bunch of Gen Zers all throwing out their opinions, barely listening to each other. And it's just, it, it, it turns into this really almost rant session with a bunch of people and there's very little alignment. It's just mm. people throwing out their opinions. And what I often hear from fellow Gen Zers is it is so difficult to be a young person in a world where everyone expects you to have a fully formed opinion on every single topic under the sun, whether it's political or economic or religious, any of these topics. And if you don't have one, you are either expected to just give one, which may not even be your actual opinion. It's just you haven't thought about it enough or researched it enough, or you kind of back away from the noise and and are seen as someone who doesn't doesn't live a credible life. So this challenge comes up all the time. So I think it would be really, really helpful if we just kind of role play this actual communication for a second. So let's just I'm let's just take pretend stances on something. If you're open to this, tell me. Sure, <laughs> tell me you're open. sure, sure. So if I were, let's say I am a pro-choice woman and you are a pro-life black man. Yeah. And we're going to have a conversation about this and just, I'll just throw out some arguments and I'm going to get heated. You know, I'll, I'll be that person on Facebook who's just ranting. And I really want to see how would you respond as a leader in love, as a human um, I really think this could be a helpful tool, not just for me, but for literally anyone who's trying to navigate these, these waters. So are you up for this? Sure. Okay, <laughs> let's do it. I wish I had like video recording because this could be such a, this could be such a great snippet, but okay. Um, I'm going to, my name is Sally. Um, and I, I'm going to post, I'll just, you know, tell you straight up, Mike, I'm telling all my friends that I just, I can't, I can't believe what has happened this past week. I mean, women should be so angry, so infuriated that the rights to their health, their livelihood are being taken away. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I have, I have three friends who have had, you know, one had an ectopic pregnancy. Another one is you know, just got pregnant out of the blue and she just didn't know what to do. And, and I just, I can't believe that the government would say that this is what we have to do with our bodies. Hannah, thank you for sharing that with me. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. I mean, and how, like, how could you, how could you say that how could you agree with them? How could you agree that this is okay to take women's bodily autonomy away? Before I respond to your question, I want to say that I'm sorry to hear about your friends. I'm so sorry to hear Thank that. You. And there's so many stories out there like that. These individuals deserve our care, our love, and our respect. And I feel and see that from you as I listen to you share your emotions and why you feel the way you do about this very, very divisive issue. Well, thank, thanks for that. I just, I just still, I, I don't, I don't understand how someone could just be so just un, uncaring. I mean, I hear what you're saying that, you know, these people deserve care, but how can we say they deserve care 
and then and then take that right away from them. Laws are laws, and we have those things for a reason. Okay. And oftentimes when these laws come about, unfortunately, someone wins and someone loses. And as a result of that, we get this. And there are many other examples of, of, of what we're talking about here. And there could be other things coming from the Supreme Court that will bring on new discussions. The question I have to ask myself is, despite what the laws are, this, this new change that we're going to be experiencing, what role can I play in helping people like your friend, despite what I believe? Or maybe people that I know who are in similar situations. Now, we may not agree uh, literally, but when it comes to human beings and what's right for them, sometimes we have to step back and look at it with op an open mind and fresh eyes. And I'm the type of person, yes, I have my beliefs, my opinions, but I'm always open to listening and learning from other people. And by taking some time today for us to talk about this particular topic, I have already learned something from you, Hannah. What's that? I mean, what, what, what have you learned? That it's important for me to be open to hearing from someone who doesn't see things the way that I do. I mean, what, so oh, that's, that's cool. Like, but what would you, what would you do about, you know, my, my friends in the situation, if, if you were in charge, cause I mean, I know, I hear you saying, you know, you're, you're caring for them or you'd want to care as humans, but what would, what would you do? I would share my opinions. If I were in your shoes, you're asking. Or if I had the ability to make the law. If you had the ability to, yeah, make the law, what would you do? Well, if I had the ability to make the law, which I don't, but if I did, it wouldn't come from a place of right or left, Democrat or Republican. It would be stepping back as an independent-minded person, processing things based on my own views, certainly, but, but more importantly, getting input from a large range of people, like maybe your friends and other people who might disagree. And then I would process that. And I'm a guy of faith, so I'm going to pray about it. And if I have a role where I have to make a vote, have to vote, it's going to be coming from a place of what's best, in my opinion, for everyone. Now, is that going to be agreed upon, approved by everyone? No. But when you're in a role of leadership, sometimes you have to make hard calls. And when you make those calls, some people are going to like it and some won't. But you've got to come from the right place, in my opinion. And it can't be a place where you're looking to be on one side or the other. You've got to look at what's right and what's wrong. And, and that's just the way I would look at it personally. Now, and that's even coming to the table with my own conditioning, because I would venture to say that everyone who had the opportunity to vote, they came to the table with their own conditioning. And a lot of that was shaped by roles they've held, people they know, places they've lived, work they've done, churches, religious affiliations, which will be churches, but also political affiliations. We've got to get beyond all the, all the things that divide our country and all the things that could divide us right here today as we talk about this particular issue. Rather than being divided, we've got to find a way to come together. What do we disagree on? Be clear on those things, but what can we agree on? Well, I guess, you know, we, we agree on 
uh, that something needs to be done, you know, that we, we can agree that there's something we need to do that we're going to have different opinions, but it, at least, you know, I'm, I'm hearing that, you know, there might be some way to care for the women involved in, in this decision. Um, that maybe we can find some, you know, some common ground outside of just this particular issue of pro-life or pro-choice, you know, just basically having a, a conversation about resources for those women. I mean, could we agree that something needs to be done to help help those women in uh, in situations where they're having to even consider an abortion? In my opinion, we should find a way to help those women who have to consider an abortion. Certainly, circumstances that were really beyond, in many cases, their control. But we should also find a way to help those people who feel like that is terrible. That's the wrong thing for us to do. I, they don't agree with us. They don't agree with that. They don't agree with you. I think we should find a way to help them as well. Nice. Okay. Close scene. <laughs> um, thank you for that, Mike. I, I think um, so there are some things I, I learned from this segment here. One is you took time to respond by pausing. You didn't immediately start talking when, when I began my rant, when Sally began her rant about this topic, right? There were these sometimes uncomfortable silences because you really wanted to make sure, number one, I'm assuming that I was finished talking, that I was finished with my rant. And number two, that you said the right thing or something didn't come out in anger. Would that be fair to say? That would be fair to say. And I'll also add that I wanted to pause just to make sure that I was digesting what I'd heard. Mm. as opposed so, to a misunderstanding. And I would have clarified if there was something I was off on, but also I didn't want to take a lot of time here. Right. But I also, I feel that taking the time to pause and think, and we talked about thinking earlier and digest what I've heard allows me then to make sure that I am responding to what I heard. And I'm coming from the right place as I'm doing that, as opposed to my own conditioning, which I'm battling as I listen. Right. Well, and just to extrapolate on that even more, something that I think that could apply to is what we saw recently last week with the Supreme Court decision. It seems like everyone is back in arms about this very, very laser pointed topic, which is pro-life or pro-choice rather than what the actual decision was of the Supreme Court, was, which was simply returning Roe v. Wade, the power of abortion and the decision-making back to the states. So it was, nobody was listening, right, to what the actual court decision meant. Nobody seemed to be listening to that. They're all just ranting, same old, same old, pro-life, pro-choice. And so what you just displayed there during that conversation was stepping back, listening, and actually hearing what I said, because I did not make the argument you know, Sally did not make the argument that, you know, you pro-lifers are from the devil or something like that. That wasn't what I said. What I said is my friends are hurting. So I noticed that you took that time to reflect and pause. And the second thing that I noticed is 
you never led our conversation down the route of the most divisive part of the issue, which is, again, this laser-pointed pro-life or pro-choice as being, you know, (laughs) being very competing ideas. What you did was try to bring us back to common ground and, and you felt empathy for my friends and then said, what can we do about that? Not what can we do about pro-life or pro-choice? What can we do about the hurt your friends are experiencing? So I, that was, I think, something you could translate that into digital communication on social media, translate it into those in-person conversations, um, it, literally any, any type of conversation that, could, that same principle, uh, what we just did, could be translated. So thank you for doing that with me out of the blue. You are very welcome. It last year I went through a program called, uh, it was a kinder Institute, but the certification that I received was registered life planner. And it's an interesting, it was an interesting process, but it took me about a year. But a big part of that was really listening with energy and emotion without judging but focus, but being focused on the person who's speaking in an authentic, transparent way. And we've got a lot of practice at that. And it's something I continue to practice daily. And I will also share with you that many of the people that I spend time with, we have different political views and beliefs. And not only politically, but about a lot of other things. So I have the opportunity to practice this a lot. But at the same time, I'm able to share how I feel. Yeah. Well, maybe that would be a, a second layer, Mike, is we just, what I, what I observed in that scene is you de-escalating the conversation to a point at which we could have a reasonable conversation. And that's what I felt or experienced from the way you responded was I felt, I, I felt drawn into this this center ground where it was easier to have a conversation. So my next question would be, and if you're willing to go here with me, you can totally tell me if you're not, but my, my next question or scenario would be now that we're on common ground, let's say my anxiety has deescalated. I'm no longer pointing fingers at Mm -hmm. you. How do we have a conversation that is in disagreement, but that's still productive, you know? So if you're, are you willing to go here? Yeah. Yeah. And I think we could do that, but we could also talk about how would that be framed and what it would look like. Okay. Um, Yeah. Because, because if you think about this, when we hear each other, whether we agree or not, when we hear each other, we're in a good place, a place from where we can start talking about what do we do about this? Okay. Some of the greatest, in my opinion, things that have happened in our country that have moved us forward were not, were not done by people who agreed. In many cases, and you can probably think about situations in your own life, these are people who disagreed, but they also realized that we have a problem. And there are things that, despite the fact that we disagree, there are things that we can do to change things. And they began to take risk, entrepreneurial risk, and they began to take steps, and they began to really focus in on those things that they actually agreed on. 
for example, you're saying it. So we were just talking about how it's the state. So the Supreme Court, they put it back in the hands of states. What can we do at the state level? Related to the things that we agree on and those things that we disagree on. I just think that there are things that we can do. And so often we don't move forward because we get stuck on the things that we disagree on. And we stay stuck. (laughs) And before we know it, something else has come down the pike. And then we run to that and we're disagreeing and we're fighting over that. But we haven't really resolved or done anything to help change what we initially disagreed on. So nothing ever changes. but, But we continue to stay divided. In my opinion, we've got to find a way to come to to come together, understanding that we disagree and respecting each other's people and respecting their opinions. That is one of the one of the areas of this this topic on equity and inclusion, race. That's another topic that if we could spend some time on that one, which we don't have the time. There are a lot of things that we could could spend time there on, because that's another area I feel that is leading to a lot of some, a lot of these other things that we're experiencing in our society today. Let's go down it. I mean, what, what would you say as a framework, if you and I disagreed about race or maybe to get more laser specific, is there a particular um, issue or scenario that we could focus on to give some really clear examples of how we could approach this? Well, I, I hear a lot of times that with this abortion issue, um, Poor African-American women, it's done for poor African-American women, right? So we got to stop abortion because it's for poor African-American women. Is that really true? I don't know. You tell, you tell me what's, what have you experienced or seen or what is the data telling you? Well, the data tells me that if we spent more time on education and identifying some of these systemic issues, we would eliminate, we would minimize some of the problems that we're facing. And abortions certainly certainly happens. Well, it happens to everybody. I mean, a lot, it's a lot of people, not just black females are doing it, poor black females, a lot of people are experiencing it. But if we've spent more time on the systemic issues, it might lead to us minimizing or resolving this particular, the occurrences of this particular issue. So what I'm hearing you say is one way to potentially frame the conversation is let's stop looking at just the one issue and ask what other things exactly. could be causing the problem. So in this, in this example that you gave about, you know, black females and abortions, what if the problem is stemming from systemic issues or from lack of family structure? What if it's stemming from a lack of education? So there are other lack avenues of, we could take. Right? Yes, lack of resources, racism, you know, being left out of society in many cases. So you get you become conditioned, and you don't and you don't know any better. It gets back to what we talked about earlier: seeing the world through our own lens. And we make decisions and we do things without the proper, we're not, we don't have the proper context or the education. And I see this and I'll give you an example of this. I was talking with my wife about this yesterday. So let's go back to, let's go to finances. Let's go to finances. I became a certified financial planner in 2020, right before COVID ensued. 
And one of the reasons I pursued that designation was because out of the 87,000 certified financial planners in the country, only 1,200 are black. So just think about that. Let's think about that. And if you were to think about what percentage would that be of our entire global population? <laughs> but, but, just, but just think about that. So we've got a problem there, in my opinion. 1,200 people can't educate the number of people that need it. But we have majority for just a second. Yeah. Too. Why, what do you think is the cause of that? Why are only 1200 black out of 87,000? There's a book called the color of money, black banks and the wealth gap. And it's up here and it talk and it, and it gives you a history of why we have a lot of the issues that we have around money in our country. And the author did a beautiful job of breaking it down, going all the way back to the end of the Civil War up to today. I mean, there was a time when if you were black, you couldn't put money in a bank. If you were black, you couldn't own a home. You didn't own a home. And when you had the opportunity to own one, you couldn't get credit. And when you could get credit, you were redlined. You could only buy homes in certain places. Now, I can go on and on and on about this. But again, we're looking at an issue today and we're making, a, making certain judgments we need to step back and look at the bigger picture here. But that takes too much work and that can be even more painful. That's what I'm talking about, Hannah. I completely hear you. And to add to that, perhaps an additional issue, and I would love to get your perspective on this, is when it comes to money and, and just financial education, for the black community, you know, I, I think I've told you or shared with you before that my parents' business is in real estate, right? Yeah. And we've and I recently a couple of years ago came back to help them with their company. And my dad's heart has always been with low-income families, especially in Asheville, where housing is so high. And as a result of that, he works with and we work with a lot of folks in Section 8 and that program. And about 90% of at least the folks in our area who we serve are young Black mothers, uh, single mothers. And something that I've noticed is there seems to be within that community a, a lack of education around money and why housing isn't actually free. Um, and sometimes what I observe is that you'll, you know, walk up to someone's house, they haven't paid their rent in a few months, and they only owe, you know, $30 a month or $60 a month out of their, say, $1,500 a month rent payment. And you'll, you know, walk over to their home, and there's a brand new Mustang in the driveway, and there's, um, you know, it, the you'll walk in, the ladies will have their nails all done, things like that, but then they can't come up with their, with their $30 a month rent payment. And what makes me, my heart so sad, and again, I would love to get your perspective on this, but what makes my heart so sad is I truly don't think that these young women have had access to any education around finances, except for their parents or their mother telling them, once you reach this certain age and have an X number of children, then you can also enter the program and have free housing. 
And there's never this conversation around how do we better our lives for our children or how can we, you know, get out of this situation that we're in so we can afford more or we can send our kids to better schools. So anyway, that is my observation and my limited view of the people that I work with on pretty much a daily basis. What are your thoughts? And could that those be contributing factors to why there's these systemic issues around money? Again, it comes back to what we're exposed to as young people. And this can be generational. This, we can continue to pass whatever it is on to the next generation. And a lot of times it's what we don't know that, that hurts us. So education can play a great role. And, and the thing I, was, I think about too is it's not just poor African-Americans. Appalachia, a friend of mine, white male, we were talking about this over the weekend. Appala Appala he grew up in an Appala Appala the Appalachian region, I guess I call it. And he shared with me, he grew up the way I grew up with very few resources, a lot of love, great, great, great childhood. He grew up very few resources, a lot of love. And there were things he didn't know. There were things I didn't know. But thankfully, over time, I learned and I was able to make choices after a lot of, a lot of mistakes as well, but choices that moved me forward. But we can only do what we know. And the earlier we can get financial, that, that is one of the reasons why I feel that financial literacy should have more room in the curriculum and schools. The fact that it doesn't is a whole nother conversation, but it should. You can only do what you know. And if your parents only know what you just described, their condition, that's the way they see the world, and that's what they're going to teach you. But that can be broken. And that is where we can come together on things we disagree on, an issue like this, and step back and start to have these types of conversations. And then we can talk about, okay, Hannah, we disagree on this, but there are some things that we've determined that we might be able to do something about. And at that point, we can take steps. We don't have to change the world. Even if we impacted one kid, for example, one young person, and they got it, and they start to make different decisions, and they start to teach their kids, and then their kids learn these things and start to teach their kids, we've got transformation going on, and we've changed legacies. That is what I was referring to when I said, hey, you know, the things that we, the things we don't agree on, certainly, but what can we agree on? And once we do Even that right now, yeah. what we just did from seven minutes ago, where we started, you threw out the big topic of racism, right? Yeah. And there are many things you and I very much agree on, Mike, but who knows? There could be plenty of things we disagree on when it comes to racism from our own individual experiences, right? And look at us in seven minutes, we've come to probably something that most people would I would say the majority of people would not disagree on, which is, can we provide more financial education and financial literacy education to young families in poverty from whatever ethnicity or Absolutely. whatever race, right? So even though, you know, you and I are not at completely opposite ends of a spectrum trying to come to a middle ground, we still, the conversation went beyond just what do we do to fix racism? And it's more about what do we do to address the underlying problems that could be causing that issue we're seeing with the current 
whatever population in poverty that is that where where children after children after children after children grow up in households without access to the education they need to escape poverty. Yes, yes, yes. What do we agree on? And what steps can we take to make a difference? We're here for such a short period of time on this earth. We each have a purpose, which is often put on the shelf. We don't think about that. And a lot of it is, my, in my opinion, is, is about serving other people. Now, what does that mean? Without that. Yeah, what does that mean? In our society, many of us are more focused on serving ourselves. I'm involved in a Rotary Club, and Rotary has a motto called service above self. There's a level of, level of humility associated with that, level of empathy. Easy to say, very hard to do, but that posture, taking that approach to life can be transformational, not just for the individual, but for those that they would impact. And that is one of the things that attracted me to Rotary, that and the four-way test, which is another thing that if I could, I'll share that right now as well. But that is, is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerned? Will it build goodwill and better friendships? Will it be beneficial to all concerned? And that's the rotary four-way test, rotary four-way test. Is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerned? Will it build goodwill and better friendships? Will it be beneficial to all concerned? And rotary had to consider that in 19 mid eighties when they did not have women, women couldn't join rotary. So Rotary had to step back as an international organization and process all of that and then make some different decisions. Now, many of the leaders in Rotary are ladies. The current president, the first president in the history of Rotary is, is a lady. Rotary is such an interesting, this is a complete side note, but I had never heard of Rotary until I want to say maybe during college, someone asked me to come speak from a Rotary club. <laughs> I walked in, I think I was the youngest person by maybe yeah. 30 years. <laughs> so yeah. I tell Rotary they need to call me. <laughs> I'm surprised you're not in a club. We could use more Hannah's in our Rotary clubs. Yeah. Are and there that's young what... people involved in, in your Rotary club? Yes, yes. And okay. we are, many clubs are now really focusing on how do we get younger and how do we, how do we uh, become more innovative? So there are online clubs. There are all sorts of things going on now. Rotor actors getting students in, in school, high school, exchange programs where you're bringing students in from other countries, sending students from here to other countries. But there's a concerted effort to get more of our native digitals into Rotary. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. I'm at least here at our chapter in, so I'm in Milt's River, North Carolina. There's a Rotary chapter in Hendersonville and well, correct me if I'm wrong, but Rotary, like the Rotary International Club, it has local chapters all over the globe, right? Yeah. 1.2 million, 1.2 to 1.4 million members in almost every country. I think it's 34, 35,000 communities around the world. The Asheville Club I have visited on a number of occasions. And yeah. I think it's the Hendersonville Club that I yeah. went to speak at at one point. But I think when I was there, it was more of a maybe a 
I don't know if there's divisions of Rotary that are political, politically active or political division. And I, I don't know how these things work. But anyway, that um, particular club, that was a very interesting, <laughs> it was a very interesting experience. I have a feeling it's different where, where you are um, than here in Hendersonville. But anyway, I, so let me shift gears here a little bit because I do want to hear about, about leader fluence. Um, because, well, this time has flown, but, um, what, what inspired you to write leader fluence? And is this your first book? You have to remind me. It is. This is my first book. And the, the thing that a couple of things inspired me to write leader fluence. One was, as I've had an opportunity to speak over the years in community and my career, and even in my business, people would come to me and they'd ask me, Hey, have you ever written a book? And always I'd say no. And I've heard people say to me, if you were to write a book, I'd buy it because I need more. I want to hear more because what you said today helped me. So that's one thing. The other reason I wrote the book was because in my career, I was constantly trained and encouraged to really be a great leader of other people. And all my training was focused on leading other people. Very rarely or ever did I get any training or any encouragement to focus on leading myself well. And after a lot of mistakes, failures, some success as well, but hitting a period of burnout. <laughs> but after all of those things and reflecting on those things, I decided to write a book that's really focusing, focused on developing more of a strategic approach to life. And that is why I wrote the book Leader Fluence. And the book starts with a quote from Philip Massinger, a dramatist. He says, he that would govern others must first be the master of himself. I like to say he or she that would govern others or who would govern others must, be the must first be the master of him or herself. So the second reason I wrote the book was we need more voices out there that really encourage us to lead ourselves well. Because if we do that, we're going to be a better leader of others. I love that. And what would you say is the, I guess, the, a glimpse into the heart of leader fluence? Like what, it, what would be your, um, your primary advice to someone if they haven't read it? Because I know it's, it hasn't come out yet. It'll be, it'll be here soon. I can't wait to, to order my copy. But um, what would be just kind of summarize for us some of the, the key takeaways. Take a strategic approach to life. Begin with the end in mind, which we heard from Covey. But when we talk about strategic planning, it's often in the context of business. What if we thought about strategic planning in the context of life? And quickly, I'll share. You take a look at the current state. What are my strengths, weaknesses? What needs to change? What is my purpose? What is my mission? What is a vision of what my future looks like? What goes do I need to set in the priority areas of life, which are, it could be faith, family, fitness, finances, fun, firm friends. And what steps do I need to take after I set those goals? Who's going to hold me accountable? How do I carve out time to make sure I'm doing the things that are necessary for me to move forward? And then once I achieve those goals, how do I celebrate? That's a, just a real general high level overview of what the book's about. And in the book, you'll hear a lot about my story, but also other examples and experiences that I've had with others. And then I lay our leadership principles on 
personal and then organizational leadership principles onto those. Well, I know your story is fascinating from Michelin to Macy's to Mars Hill, where we first met. Um, so I, I can't wait to read it and just apply the learnings to my life. I think the strategic plan of life is such an interesting sort of way to picture, or at least like I, I, I like to write in a journal. I'm a native digital, but I like, I have like a physical journal that I love to write in and, you know, at different touch points of my life, whether it's, it's usually quarterly, I try to sit down and write out, yeah, what are those goals? What are my, my goals within faith and family and friends? And, um, you know, it's interesting, Mike, one of the goals this year that I had, because I, I don't like setting new year's resolutions. I don't know if you do that, but as most people find they're pretty useless, you give up on them. But one of the things that I determined to do this year is instead of being so focused on, you know, business and business growth, and even though my heart was in a place to try to be a, you know, be a servant leader and always be others first when it came to business, what I was neglecting in my life is building meaningful relationships with friends who have nothing to do with business. You know, sometimes those are the friendships that are easiest to neglect, as you know, when you're building a growing company. Mm -hmm. So what I really chose to do this year is to build friendships with some people in my life who don't want to talk about business all the time or growth or strategy or whatever. It was just to focus on people who could pour into my life in other ways. Like how are they loving their family and their kids? How are they enjoying life? What do they do for fun and just have fun? And I cannot tell you just in just talking about your kind of strategic plan for life. For some of us, it's literally backing off of that go, go, go strategy and making an intentional plan around how do I build in friendships that create relaxation and create rest. Yeah. And that has been so helpful for me this year. So anyway, I just, I loved, I love that idea and that picture of strategy. At least what I take away is strategy doesn't always mean progress in, in terms of what the world says, right. In terms of money or growth or success, sometimes it means progress in being restful and being at peace. Wow. I love the way you said that. And I, the success topic is a big one. It's one we could do a whole show on and uh, hopefully you'll, you'll have someone to talk about this because very rarely, I, and this was my case for me, do we define success for ourselves? Often it's defined for us. And when it is, it's inherently pleasure, prosperity, power, prestige, or position. The five P's guy of California, Ron Jensen, which I just love that thought, pleasure, prosperity, power, prestige, position. Consciously defining success for ourselves is such an important step. It is such an important step. It sounds like you, you have done that. And as I think about you, I just want to applaud you for the work you're doing to bring native digitals and analog together. Because we spent quite a bit of time today talking about divisions. There is a gap there as well. And I see it in my executive coaching work, working with senior leaders who've been around for a long time, who don't understand the young people or the native digitals. 
closing that gap is something that's so critically important. And I want to applaud, I want to applaud you for the work you're doing to make that happen because many people have quit and they're still on the payroll. They show up every day. They do just enough to get by. If we could just realize what is special about us, regardless of whether we agree or disagree, regardless of whether we're in the same age category or not, and focus on those things that are special about us and encourage each other and listen and care about. Certainly, we want to get results. But if we do it coming from a place of caring and understanding, tremendous things can happen as we move forward. I completely agree. And that's why we're having this conversation right now. Right, Mike? I mean, yes. we're, this is, I believe, how we begin to make those shifts and those changes is number one, recognizing we are different, acknowledging that, and that our, you know, as I talk about on the show all the time, that the new generation comes equally as human and equally as proud and narcissistic and all of that as, the, as other generations before us. We also come as a new category of human in that we're integrated with machines as the first humans in history. However, we are human. We need to come into this, this bridge together, recognize we're different and how much we're the same at the same time. And I mean, we, you and I have so much in common and yes. we're from completely different generations. My friends and I, sometimes we have less in common than, you know, you and I do, and they're from the same generation. So we're, we're all going to face these divisions and we have to find a way not just to overcome them, but to courageously disagree. Yes. Disagree. It's okay. It's not, it's not a bad thing. It is okay. It is okay. And we shouldn't agree on everything. If we agreed on everything, the world would be a boring place. Very boring. <laughs> we, yeah, we grow. I, I grow when I make mistakes. I grow when I'm with someone I disagree with because oftentimes I come with my own ideas and ways of seeing the world and my own conditioning. But by listening, I learn. And I've had, when you think about learning, I know for me, a lot of my learning has come from being with people and listening to them. I cannot tell you how much I've learned over my life, really after I got a good understanding of the importance of listening, how much I've learned is I've taken the time to listen well to other people. Whether I agreed or disagreed, you can always find something that you can walk away with that just might be helpful. Thank you for that, Mike. And we'll close on that note. I've so enjoyed this conversation and especially the role playing because we need more and more and more of that in our in our very divided world today of just people, you know, maybe that'd be, even be a good exercise. I literally just thought, thought of this. What if two, you know, two people could get in a room and say, let's play the other side of this opinion. Let's, let's say I'm pro-life and you're pro-choice. And we, we decide to swap it and say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to advocate as a pro-choice or you advocate as a pro-lifer. And let's, let's come to our own understanding of the other person's opinion by battling it out from the other perspective, you know, like this is needed so much. And so I so appreciate you being willing to go there with me and have this, have this conversation. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you for really that idea. I enjoyed that. It's something that I do with my 
coaching clients quite often. Let's role play the situation that you're in the middle of. And there's a lot to be said for that type of active learning. 100%. Let's do it more. Yes. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>